So I went to university, obviously I moved out, moved back in with my parents after uni because obviously couldn't get a job. <laughs> so moved back in with my parents, stayed there for a few years. And at, at times it was quite difficult because, you know, you're an, you're an adult, but you're still living with your parents. And then I moved out, got married, moved out for a few years. And then we realized while we were renting, it was very difficult to save for our house. So moved back in with my parents again. A couple of pivotal moments, definitely the moment that I spoke about, you know, being 18, being rubbed at gun, gunpoint, that, that was a big moment in my life that definitely shaped me for a while, I would say. It was definitely traumatic. It was before, way before the conversation about mental health. It was just literally a space for me. That's why it's called Music Football Fatherhood, right? It's probably not the most easy name to say <laughs> and everyone gets it wrong. But it was literally more just like, these are the things that I, <laughs> I love and I would really want a platform that incorporates these three things. And welcome to Everyday Leadership podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Conversation with great leaders. And today I have the pleasure of talking to someone who is the founder of Music Football Fatherhood. Um, he's worked in the civil service for a while. His last role there was like head of diversity and inclusion for um, HM Treasury. And he's also a renowned author of the amazing book, um, dad, which we're definitely going to delve into today, he's won like multiple awards, you know, from the UN, he's got a documentary out. He's a man of, of many talents and he's someone who I absolutely admire for the work that he's doing in this space. I have Mr. Elliot Ray in the house. How are you doing, my brother? I'm good, man. I feel like with that introduction, I would be blushing <laughs> if I could. Obviously, I can't. If I could blush right now, I'll be going red. I think it's always, it's always interesting when people listen to their own intros and it makes me curious actually. How how do you like like to introduce yourself? I find it very uncomfortable sometimes. Like it's weird. I don't know. Not that I'm not proud or, you know, I don't believe in myself or anything like that. It's just it's just a bit weird hearing people like list off your achievements. And so sometimes when um people ask me to introduce myself, I don't even know where to start, to be honest. Because I'm like, do I start with kind of what I do or do I start with why I do it or do I start with you know the the achievements so uh yeah so it's an ongoing thing I'm still I'm still figuring that one out how often do you actually take time to even recognize the achievements that you've had I think you know recently in the last few weeks especially I've been having some really I've been thinking a lot and We'll be sitting <laughs> sitting down with my wife and <laughs> it'll be about 9pm and maybe we're sitting down and the TV's on and then I'll just come out with some some thought that I've had that day, you know, big thoughts. I'm, I'm thinking big at the moment, some big thoughts around politics or just psychology or speaking and the work and mass, like I, I'm, just, I'm just in the zone of thinking a lot, trying to connect a lot of dots and trying to work out 
I guess my my place in the world, my purpose, how I best use my time and energy. And so, so when it comes to achievements, I guess yeah, you know, I, I think about them. Um, not necessarily looking back, but more about why, you know, why we do things. I think it's very easy to do things to have another accolade. But actually, what I've realized is that all those achievements have just come from doing the work. And so for me, it's just about focusing on doing the work. And then what happens, happens, you know, and those list of things happen, but it doesn't happen from seeking that. It happens from the the work when, you know, no one's really watching and when you're tired and you don't feel like it. It's about finding discipline over motivation, you know? So um, I think it's just, I look back, but more as a reminder to just keep doing the work. That phrase actually, discipline over motivation. I think it's, it's one that's not easy to achieve, one that is necessary to be able to succeed in whatever it is that you set out to do. I guess I'm curious, if you were to go way back to like a, a younger six-year-old version of Elliot, what were you like then? I was football mad. Still am, to be fair. Uh, very much into sports. I think I've been quite obsessive. Like I remember obsessing about things and I'm probably the same now. Like I get into something, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm in it and I want to, I'm so excited about it and passionate about it and I want to know everything about it. And I think that that trait has definitely stayed as well. Um, competitive, I would say, you know, I've always, I've always wanted to win at sports day. Um, to be the fastest <laughs> there was always one boy Stephen <laughs> I beat him once but he was super quick <laughs> but we would always be like 100 well probably was 100 meters at six years old right 20 meters or whatever it was we'd always have the sports day race and so yeah I think I think I think that always like being having lots of friends um being sociable when I was younger I, w- I was shy at times as well though there were moments where I wasn't as confident as I as I could have been and I think that's something I take into my parenting now, actually. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Looking back at, at your childhood and how it shaped you and how it shapes us now. Did you want to become a, since you're so into like sports and football, did you want to become a footballer? Was that the path that you you had in mind, even as a teenager? Yeah, I thought it was going to be Paul Ince. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw Paul Ince at Euston Station. He blanked me. I was like, Paul, mate, like, what are you doing? This is you are my childhood hero. <laughs> they say they say never, never meet your heroes. They always say that. <laughs> you got, got off the train. Fair enough. He might have been a rush, but I wasn't. Yeah, you know, I wasn't asking his autograph. I was literally just. It was his acknowledgement. He just looked at me, blanked me, and walked off. And I was like, "Paul, man, like, come on! If that was Ian Wright, Ian Wright would have stopped and said hello." <laughs> <laughs> Why Paul instead of Ian? Because in those days, like I'm thinking, yeah, why Paul? You know, I like, I like, I'm a QPR fan, but um, mm-hmm. Man United were the big team at the time, I think. And obviously, Paul Ince being a black black man, he's a midfielder. I played in midfield, um, so yeah, I guess he was someone that I looked at and saw myself in. Top of his game, this is like the, like the 90s, right? 96, 97. So. 
that that was a team and they had that black kit. The black kit, I think it was sharp view cam. Mm-hmm. Um with the yellow writing at the front. And yeah, Ince was just the guy, you know? So um yeah, never meet your heroes, man, at Houston Station. Just 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 get on your train. <laughs> <laughs> just go home. Don't bother stopping. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? You're, you're a gooner, right? I'm a gooner. Mine, mine's Ian. Ian yeah. Wright and um, Tierra Henry have been my actually, and Dennis Burkamp. Those have been my three, okay. my three go tos. Have you met them? And I've not. I met Ian okay. actually. So I had a brief. I had a brief. Like Ian was Ian was great. I've not met um, Tierra Henry yet or Dennis Burkamp, but Ian was. Ian was just like a man mm. minute, so he was just busting jokes, so that was cool. Yeah, yeah, I met Ian right years ago. It was this is like you know I was about seventeen, and my cousin Jordan he worked in a hotel, and posh hotel in London, and they used to give that like, the, the people that stayed there would give him tickets to things because he got on with people, you know some of the people that come to stay in the hotel, and we had tickets to Wyclef's party, it was some exclusive party in London. Bearing in mind we're like. Maybe 16, 16, 17. So we rock up to this party now and Wycliffe's just like warming up. He's there with his wife. And we met the sugar babes and all, all these people were there. And then Ian Wright was there. Ian Wright was there. And I was like starstruck. I was literally starstruck. And I remember meeting him. I was just shaking his hand. And he was like looking at me, expecting me to say something. I just said nothing. I just stared at him. <laughs> <laughs> You're holding Batman's hand, just looking into his eyes like... <laughs> it was so awkward. I was just there, just like... You know that awkward silence where I was just looking at him like... And he was waiting for me to... You know, obviously, some people normally say, Oh my gosh, you're my hero. I just stared at him. Like, just looked at him. <laughs> so I need to meet him again and be like, Sorry, mate, I know that must have been super awkward for you. <laughs> wow. But I can see that, though. I can see, I can see how that happened. You need to make you know what as part of that's one of the things as part of your building out which we're going to talk about a bit more as well but building out music football fuck mm. you should invite him down definitely definitely why not and when you talk about you being so sports obsessed and into obviously playing football and everything else like that did your parents come out to your games when you were younger yeah 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 um not all of them but my dad would be at some some of them on a Sunday. Um, but yeah, they weren't the parents that, you know, my parents, I think were very realistic. Um, and they were very supportive in lots of ways. I think supporting my football career wasn't, don't, don't get me wrong. They supported my football career. I can't say they didn't, but you know, I, I was never going to be a professional footballer. Like, and I think they knew that, but um, yeah, my parents were very supportive in, in lots of ways though and I was actually watching something yesterday a psychologist who talks about generations and she was speaking about millennials being very very still dependent on their parents for you know babysitting um, financial support help with mortgage deposits or just emotional support you know and my parents have definitely been that for for me and my sister, you know, a big um, support. And in this conversation I was listening to, they were talking about, obviously you've got gaps in maybe graduates, non-graduates, race, class, etc. 
one of those that they were saying we should add was the availability and ability for your parents to help support you through life and people who do have that parental support you know into adulthood how that can just give you an advantage and yeah I think for me my parents we're lucky enough to have that you know my parents are still together they um they've evolved over time like my dad was very strict when, (laughs) when he was when I was young very very strict and now he's like the most chilled out person ever so uh yeah it's, in, it's interesting how our relationship has evolved and how how I've seen them change and how I think um parenting develops you know you go from the the, the very parent child relationship to to hopefully you know becoming friends when when you're older and I hope my daughter and me can be friends when she's you know 25 30 we can sit down and 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 chat and and get on and just just like each other, like to be each other, around each other and enjoy each other's company. So yes, it's um very I feel very lucky, very very lucky that the parents have been blessed to have. One, it's great to hear that you're, obviously your parents are still together, but even that evolution over the years of just being parents to friends to change, it's not something that is the norm actually for a lot of people when you, when you talk to them, whether it's from those who are African backgrounds or Caribbean backgrounds, is there still this relationship there as you get older that can sometimes just change slightly, but there's still some of those frictions that are still there. But hearing that evolution from you and your parents, mm-hmm. it just sounds really amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's hard to learn and adapt, you know, because um, so I went to university, obviously I moved out, <clears throat> moved back in with my parents after uni because obviously couldn't get a job. <laughs> so moved back in with my parents and stayed there for a few years and at, at times it was quite difficult because you know you're an, you're an adult but you're still living with your parents and then I moved out got married moved out for a few years and then we realized while we were renting it was very difficult to save for our house so I moved back in with my parents again and that was interesting. They thought they got rid of me. And now I'm coming back with a wife and child. And they're like. <laughs> so moving back into my the same room. Um, a very, very humbling experience, you know. But moving back into my same room. But it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, there was tension there, obviously, like at parts. But it was great. We managed to save all our money because we didn't have to pay rent or council tax or anything like that. My parents helped out with um with childcare and stuff like that. So, you know, when I was talking about just being lucky to have that support, it's those kind of things. We moved back for 18 months and then we'll manage to to, to buy our first house. Um but yeah, I'm I'm not saying that it was always plain sailing. There's always a bit of there's always a bit of power dynamics going on, especially when you're living back home. But you know, we're 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 in a place now where you know I can look back and be like, wow, is that what you you two had to contend with? You came over here from Grenada and St. Vincent um, you know, my dad tells me about him and his brother sharing the living room in the house. The living room was their bedroom. They had a fold-out kind of bed, sofa bed. And he always talks about my grandma, you know, used to love to entertain and have people over. And on school nights, he had to wait for the visitors to leave before him and his brother could get the sofa bed out and go to bed and go to school the next day. And they, you know, they were in, in primary school at that age. So... To, for him to you know go from that to to raising two children to um you know doing well in his in his career being happy they go back to Grenada every year 
for a few months. Yeah, it's very inspiring to see. Very, very inspiring to see. And I think it's so important to have those, you know, those models at home. I think even for me, over and above like success, but it's more about communication in a relationship and seeing my parents talking. And I remember my dad said to me before I got married, he sat us sat us down, me and Seneni, my wife, and he'd had a few glasses of red wine by then. And he was talking about communication. And he was saying, look, the most important thing, your task when you get married is to always talk to each other, always communicate. And I thought about it over the next few days and I thought about the amount of times as a child, I'd be upstairs in my room just hearing my mum and dad talking. I don't know what they're talking about, but I'm just hearing them talking. And I, and when he was saying that, I was thinking, it's true, you know, all my childhood, I've just heard you, you both talking, like to the point where it just becomes sounds, right? I'm not even listening to the words, but I'm just, I've always heard you always talking to each other. And I think it's just powerful advice in a, in a marriage, just to have that communication where you're always talking to each other. You're talking about your day, your feelings, you're asking questions, you're curious, you know, you're sharing so important so yeah those things are valuable valuable advice if you haven't already can you please follow the podcast it really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it an apple podcast if you click the three dots in the top right of your app Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Even more so, the reason why you can relate to that and take it on board is the fact that you saw your parents doing it. A lot of times you hear people like, oh, this is some great advice. You're like, yeah, but you didn't do it. So why am I going to listen to you? But you can go back into that memory of, actually, yeah, that was true. That I, I, I saw you muddling this. And therefore, I recognize the fact that you're not just saying it because it sounds nice. You're saying it because that's how you operate it and that's what's made a difference for you. And I guess it goes back to the, the role modeling thing, right? Sometimes we see, we learn from what people do rather than just what they say. That translates into the workplace. It translates into parenting, um, relationships. You know, the, the actions are are um, just as valuable, if not more valuable than, than the words that we say. It's interesting when I hear you talk about you moving back home with your wife, with your daughter. I know that kind of being an easy decision for you as as a man. Um, there's a lot of ego involved in making those kind of choices as well. And as you said, that my mind went back into there's a bit you wrote in your book about an incident that you had when you were younger, um, where you kind of got into trouble, was gun involved with that kind of stuff. But it wasn't around. It wasn't. It wasn't about that. It was more around the ego that was at play. And I'm curious, was that what helped you over the years, those kind of experiences um, to be able to, I want to say, lay down your ego and just learn to be able to deal with it? Mm. I think that's something that we all have to overcome. We have to overcome ourselves. You know, I think overcoming ourselves is like very, very powerful. Like I, I believe we are, as individuals, all of us, capable of amazing things the biggest barrier outside of obviously there are real barriers when it comes to access to to resources and inequalities but one of the biggest barriers is 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 overcoming ourselves you know getting out of our own way um and that means 
mastering, I think, the sometimes quite natural push to have an ego or to be too proud, you know, to be too proud or to recognize our strengths and weaknesses to ask for help, you know, kind of like all those ideas around what, what we would define as toxic masculinity and the bad parts of, of, um, of masculinity. I think it's get, getting out of your own way and just being humbled, but in a good way, you know, and I think we've all had our experiences that teach us certain things through life. And yeah, in the book, I think I wrote, I wrote about a couple of those things, you know, one being my, my daughter's birth and what we experienced through that. Um, the other being the incident where I was, you know, robbed at, at gunpoint and it wasn't necessarily the act of that. It was more about the embarrassment of who was there at the time and who saw that, you know, and that was for, for me, looking back, I was more worried about the perception rather than my actual well-being and health. So overcoming those kind of things, getting to grips with that and processing those things, I think has helped me to do the work I do now, you know, with a real heightened sense of self-awareness. I'm not perfect at all, but trying to be as self-aware as possible, as emotionally intelligent, as forgiving. Again, I'm a work in progress, but forgiveness. And yeah, I think I think I think we have to go through life's experiences to teach us those lessons, you know, if we wanna if we wanna be the people that we can be to achieve our potential and achieve the achieve the greatness that I believe is in in all of us, you know, to do something. Like I think we're all great at something, but getting out of our own way is a big part to achieving that, I think. What have you found in because prior to even doing what you do right now with uh, music football fatherhood, you spent a number of years working with a lot of young people. Um, so what have you found in your experiences has been some of the difficulties that can stop people from actually seeing what you see and get in their own way repeatedly time and time again? I would say a big part of it is Going back to, to the example at home, you know, I would credit me and my my success and where I am completely down to my parents. Not to say that they encouraged me to to do this. Actually, they hated the fact that I, they hate the fact that I'm like not. I would say hate, but they would much prefer if I had a steady nine to five. <laughs> they would much prefer if I was, you know, my first job after uni was as a cashier actually I couldn't get a job I studied business and marketing for my degree I couldn't get a job spent about six months applying just you know no letters back nothing at the time I don't think I understood the corporate game and probably who and who and what I was up against at all couldn't get a job so mum was like why don't you come work with me in the bank so I was like okay cool I applied for, applied for a job got an interview got the job didn't realise that meant literally work with me at the bank, sit next to me while you're doing your cash in job. <laughs> so I'm there like on my best behaviour. Yes, sir. How would you like a change? Okay. My mum's sitting right next to me. That only lasted for my induction, about six weeks or so. But um, And then I went on to to work with young people, 
teaching and music production and and uh, being part of community projects. And I think what when when I talk to those those young people who you know they're, they're big men now they've got kids and whatnot, but speaking to them, I think what I had was stability at home, you know, and there were certain decisions that I could have made that I didn't make, not necessarily because I was scared of the police or scared of health repercussions or whatever. I was scared of my dad. I was scared of what my dad's going to say. I didn't want to let my mum down. I didn't want to let the family down, you know? I didn't want to let the family down. So there's certain things where you're, where you're, where you're out you're out of your home, you're out doing whatever you're doing. And if you have stability at home, in your mind, you that's that's there. The lessons that your parents have taught you or the or or the the awareness that you don't want to go home and tell your parents that you've done something that you shouldn't have done, you know? So for me, I would I would I would put my personal circumstance and my the the success I've had in life, I would credit credit it to that. Not to say that that's always the case, you know, you can have parents that do a great job and, and things still go wrong. So that's not for everyone. For me personally, I think that's that's what I would credit it down to. But yeah, I do feel like it's probably a mixture overall of, of, of that stability at home. There's some of us take, you know, we have different personalities, you know, some of us take longer to reach a level of maturity. Um, some of us want to be more accepted in the crowd just naturally based on who our personality type you know we're all different some people might have uh, luck where they're able to get a job or get an opportunity that takes them into seeing a different way of living you know but for me definitely it was accountability at home I would say the impressions that we live as our parents leave on us and then we leave on our kids is um is super super important and the way that you've been approaching that with um the work that you've been doing around in music um football fatherhood has been very much arresting around dads and having open conversations talking about masculinity or toxic masculinity and like what does it mean to be a modern day kind of father and i'm, I'm curious what was for you? What was the that journey like, as in creating like MFF? So I think, what is it to be a modern day father? So I get asked this question quite a lot, and I'm always very careful how I answer it because there is no one way, right? Like I'm not the dad guru out here. <laughs> like, oh, dad, listen to me. Like, I, like my daughter will tell you, I'm not the perfect parent. Do you know what I mean? I get angry sometimes. I'm impatient sometimes, you know? When she's not brushing her teeth and we're late to leave, I'm not always this calm parent. That's like, you know, put yourself in, the, in their shoes. Sometimes I'm just like, get, brush your teeth. We need to leave. Let's go. I've told you five times. What are you doing? You're driving me crazy. Do you know what I mean? So I'm always very careful to, to, to not be, not position myself as a dad guru. And that's not what MFF is about. It's not about telling people what's right or wrong. It's about creating spaces for conversation and sharing stories, ultimately. So for me, the way I answer this question is, it's not even what, it's, what it is to be a dad. Actually, what is it to be a man? Because you're a man first, right? And for me, being a man now is simple. It's just being yourself. Being yourself. 
But I think for a lot of us, being ourselves is very difficult to do. It's very, very difficult to, to, to like totally be yourself. You know, I think there's a lot of work that needs to go into, first of all, finding out who we are. Like, what do we believe? What are our values? You know, how do we want to live our lives? What, what impact do we want to have on the world? How do we want our relationships to look like? Like, that is deep work. What do we like? What do we not like doing? You know? So doing that work and coming to your conclusions as much as you can without being influenced by what we think we should be because we are men. So what we think a good man has been, which some of the models are good, some of the models are bad, right? There's some very toxic traits that we have grown up with that don't serve us, don't help us. But because we have seen that modelled, we believe that's how we should be. For example, being unemotional, you know, being stoic. Of course, I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for that, but living our lives being stoic for all of our days probably isn't a good way of just being a human being and existing in the world and, and building good relationships and looking after our mental health. That's probably not a healthy thing to do. So I think there's about being yourself. And when I was talking about, you know, getting out of my own way, dropping the ego, all those sort of things, it's figuring out who you are like outside of those external influences that's deep work and that's hard work but I think when we do that work we might find out or come to the conclusion that actually yeah we do want to be and value community we do value and understand our strengths and weaknesses and we do actually want to ask for help and support sometimes or we do actually want to be vulnerable with our partner like you know, and, 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 and those things which I think are, are healthy. So, so yeah, for me, it's about being yourself and doing that work to figure out what that is. You're looking at me very thoughtful here. Yeah, because you mentioned, there's two things you mentioned right at the start and then right there as well, as you expanded on that. What's the difference between being a man before a dad? Why is that important to have that distinction? Well, like a dad is, is a role that we play right? Like we are, we are people first. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Elliot. A dad is something that I have become. I created life with my wife. <laughs> she gave birth. <laughs> my daughter came, right? But I am, I'm a, I'm a man first. We are people first. And I think to look at it from what kind of dad you want to be without looking at what kind of man you want to be, I think is a bit is the wrong way around. You need to look at what kind of man you're going to be first. If you can define that first and figure out that, the parenting side kind of comes out of that. You know, if you, if you're looking at how you want to be in terms of your emotional well being, or how you communicate, how you speak, and how you listen, you look at how you want to think, you know, and how how much you're trying to as much as possible, master and control your thoughts and, and, and those kind of things. That translates into parenting and that, that translates into what kind of dad or, or mom or parent you want to be. But you have to do that work yourself first. And maybe that's even harder because parenting is like, okay, cool. I can be this person for that person. 
you know, I'm going to be like this for my children. But actually, what are you for yourself? What are you doing the work for yourself first? And maybe that's a more difficult thing to do. Maybe that's more introspective. How did you begin to go on that path and that journey? Because we're talking to Lauren around growing up in the city of London, friends, or that kind of environment that you find yourself in. It's different. It's a very different way of thinking about being a man, about having that introspection, about analyzing a number of different things that you kind of touched about. So what was it that kind of helped you go on on that path and that journey and start to look at things very, very differently and exploring that? I'd say I've always been like a someone that's thought quite a lot. Like I've always tried to analyze things as much as I can. Um, I would say a couple of pivotal moments, definitely the moment um, that I spoke about, you know, being 18, being rubbed at gun, gunpoint, that, that was a big moment in my life that I think shaped, definitely shaped me for a while, I would say. Um, it was definitely traumatic. It was before, way before the conversation about mental health. Um, but I was in a difficult place, but I had great, you know, my, my cousin and great friends who, who would, who supported me through that. But I think it definitely did shape me in terms of wanting to be successful. I would say, if I'm completely honest, wants to be successful as a way of like my own revenge, you know? To be like, okay, well, you tried to do this, but I'm still here. I'm still standing, right? So I'll say that is something that definitely shaped me. I would say meeting my wife, you know, um, you know, she's someone who is so, she's such a good friend. Like she's such a good friend. Like she's an amazing friend to her friends and to me, but she just puts her friends first, you know, she's so accepting of who people are. And that is something I've learned from her. She's an amazing friend. I tell her all the time, I'm like, you're such a good friend, man. I need to, I need to learn from you. Like, you're an amazing friend. And she's always, she's always like, you know, the maid of honor. She's always, like, she's always there. Every event we go to, she's like the one. She's the one to so many different people, you know? And it just, it's just a testament to how people view her. So I think meeting her and what she's taught me and our relationship has really helped. And then I would say my daughter's birth, you know, the, the whole trigger for MFF and the work I do, it was from that moment. So beforehand, I was working in the civil service. I was doing people-based roles. At the time, I was in the part for transport. So this is 2015, like seven years ago now. And we had a very traumatic birth experience where she was born with an infection called group B strep which, you know, one in 10 babies will die from group B strep. One in 10 will have a serious lifelong severe disability. She was born with that. She was you know, gray, lifeless. She wasn't breathing when she was born. My wife was bleeding out. So we spent a good couple of weeks in, in, in ICU, intensive care. Lots of ups and downs. You know, one day the infection was going, one day it was coming back aggressively. The day when we got the news that we could go home because the infection had gone, my daughter developed a bump 
on the back of her head. And that's when the medical professionals, you, you know, they were really worried about us. They didn't know if it was a tumour or, you know, they didn't know what was going on. So we're booked in for an MRI scan the next day. And that night, that night, you know, by far the most difficult night of our lives. We we just cried and prayed for hours. And there was a midwife called Nagme who came in the room. She stayed with us all night. I'm sure her, her colleagues were wondering where she was, but she stayed with us all night. And we prayed and we cried. And it was like the first time I'd cried since being a child, but we cried. Um, the next day, she went for the MRI scan. We waited back in our room. We waited for the, the nurse to come through the door. They'd burst. Every time we were in hospital, that, that two weeks, they just burst through the door. They would not. They just burst in. So we waited for that burst. And then she, when she came in, she had her arms out, gave us a massive hug. And she told us that it was nothing to worry about. It was bone structure. You know, we could go home. So after that traumatic event of, you know, nearly losing the two people who I, you know, love the most, going home, having the weekend, back to work. And in a job, fairly senior, a lot of responsibility, given grace for a few weeks of being a new dad, but pretty after that, just, you know, <laughs> expected to perform again. Get on with it, basically. At home, my wife was diagnosed with postnatal anxiety. You know, she would find it difficult to leave the house. I'd come home from work, still be packing the bag. 6 p.m., it's dark outside, it's October, November. So she was struggling. We were super paranoid about my daughter's health. We were in A&E probably once a week for the first two or three months. And, you know, I, I'm very, like, overall quite confident, quite extroverted, social, and I hadn't previously had any mental health challenges. But the lack of accepting, understanding, processing, the tiredness of just being a new parent anyway, um, all that trauma that I hadn't processed, you know, that, that, that just came out, basically. And I'd be on the train on the way home from work, just in tears, you know, just not wanting to go home, just I'd be knackered up all night, couldn't sleep. I would be having panic attacks in work meetings. I'd be able to not be able to like talk, saying hello to my team, trying to say hello to my team in the morning and not being able to say anything like mumbling. Um, And so, so yeah, kind of like didn't really, talk about it apart from with my wife a little bit not to the I wouldn't tell her everything but I would you know she would she would obviously pick up on things but at work try my best not to be honest about what was really going on for me and then kind of by accident met a birth trauma specialist who 18 months later who then kind of diagnosed me and got me support through that way took some time off work and whatnot 18 months, yeah. So I went through 18 months. In between that, my daughter also had a severe wheat allergy, which is crazy. And so, so I should say a wheat allergic reaction to wheat, which is very serious. She's got an EpiPen now. But but yeah, those 18 months, and what I learned from those 18 months is that it's so easy for us as humans to like just put a mask on stuff. 
you know, and I didn't understand that before. I didn't realize that. And in my naivety, sometimes I would even look at, you know, people who had taken their own life and I, I wouldn't be able to understand how the family didn't know. If I'm, giving, if I'm being completely honest, I wouldn't, like, I hadn't experienced it. I'd always think, oh, like, like no one knew. How did no one know? Like, do you know what I mean? Whereas now I understand. I'm not saying I was in a point where I was having suicide. I wasn't having suicidal thoughts at all. But because I was masking what was going on, I fully now understand how someone can appear happy or, you know, excited, busting jokes or whatever. They could be going through the worst shit in the world. Like they could be going through some stuff and you would never know because they would just present as, you know, the loud one, the funny one. They would seem relaxed, like on the face of it. And the more I, the work I do now, whether it's with MFF or the work I do in, in companies, if I'm going in, I'm talking about fatherhood, mental health, masculinity. And, we, you know, my, my aim is to always have the vulnerable conversations, basically. There's always someone in the room that's going through something. Always. Always. Like, there might be like 20, 40, 50, 100. There's always some, at least one person, generally more, who's going through something it comes out in the session and no one would have ever known, you know? And I've learned so much, especially when it comes to men and men's mental health and ideas of being a man. Part of that is the the stoicism, right? The, the need to to be strong, um, which is not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. Like life is hard, we need to be strong, but just not, <laughs> some, sometimes there's time for vulnerability as well. And what I didn't do in those 18 months and what I've, learn and what informs my my work is the importance of like getting out of your way you know getting out of your way and so I think that is that is what has shaped me and it's weird even even like sometimes in our in our worst lowest moments we we learn a lot from it and so I'm very grateful for all of I'm grateful for all of my like all of the stuff you know I'm I'm grateful for it I'm happy. I'm very happy with my life. And I think that's because what I, I guess what I was able to do is take those experiences, you know, to build on myself and build something else for other people. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I look back at everything with gratitude. I'm, I'm very happy. This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions will align. We help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. If that's something that you're interested in, if you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. 
always say turning pain into purpose is always such a great way to be able to learn the lessons, but also to help other people to grow. And therefore, even when you look back on some of those painful experiences, you don't always, you don't feel the, the hurt that was at that point, but you look back them more with a different set of eyes, which allows you to, to recognize what the experiences really were for. And it's such a great way to be able to go through life. Because there are times when we're like, oh, I remember when that was, and you feel that hurt coming up in your chat. But actually, if I've learned to process and utilize those experiences, then I no longer feel that. Instead, I can actually feel joy. And they're like, yeah, but that's a tough experience. Like, yes, it was. And it still is. But there was something I was birthed through that. And that, for me, helps me to make more sense of it, which, listen to your story, mm-hmm. listen to you share that, is um, such a powerful thing. Because we all... So we all, but generally speaking, a lot of us walk around life with masks on. And it's just so much more easier to do that than to open up and to share as to what's really going on and to really bear that vulnerability. Like, no, this is this is how I'm how I'm feeling. And we end up protecting ourselves so much. And it's not a lot of times you actually hear a lot of men talking about that. It's interesting, I was talking to someone recently and they were talking about women about black women particularly and that whole strong black woman um, troop, which has been around for so long. And they're like, I don't want to be a strong black woman. Like, it's tiring. I'm carrying so much. Mm-hmm. I just want to be able to just let it all down and just be and just exist as a woman and someone to just hear me, see me, look after me. And as you were talking, that's what literally came into my head, uh, even as a man, that we feel this whole societal way of as a man, I have to be stoic. As a man, I have to protect. As a man, I have to do da 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 da. Never wants to actually stop and do exactly what you're saying. We should do like no, slow down, check yourself. What's going on with you? What's going on inside of you? Let all that out because mm-hmm. if you keep on carrying that, it's going to bubble up to the surface in one way, shape, or form. And a lot of times, when it bubbles up, it's not always in a positive way; it's in a negative way. And those around us feel that impact. So do some work mm-hmm. before you actually let it get there. Yeah, well said. Well said. What's been when you created MFF? How did that come about? I know it was it was a blog, and then you kind of. Mm. But did you always when you started it? Did you think it will become what it's become today? I think yes and no. Like no in terms of it was just literally a space for me. That's why it's called Music Football Fatherhood, right? It's probably not the most easy name to say, <laughs> and everyone gets it wrong. And if I was looking at it from a branding perspective, I'd probably call it something a lot easier to say and remember. But it was literally more just like, these are the things that I <laughs> I love. And I would really want a platform that incorporates these three things. And I, I, I didn't, it wasn't necessarily super like, you know, strategic. It wasn't really. It was more, what what would I like to see? Cool. Music, football, fatherhood. Um, I'm a musician. I play the bass guitar. I actually met my wife in a band together. Obviously, we've spoken about football and fatherhood. So it just makes sense so oh wow so yeah it wasn't it wasn't a big strategic thing but at the same time I did know that there was something missing you know when I was searching for things on the internet I just found mum's net but there wasn't really anything written for many men especially not from black men so um yeah I knew there was definitely a a space so it started off as a blog you know when in, in those 18 months that I spoke about one of the symptoms actually of um you know, PTSD, especially depression as well, is is kind of like distracting, overworking. And I think part of me and my 
dealing with that period of time was to feel like I had some control. So I would, I had I had little control in many parts of life. So one part of life I could control was just having my own little blog. So I could write, I could control when, when things go up, you know, I could design it. And it's just like a nice little thing to have that was a release from everything else. So I would just work super hard on that. And I remember, like at the time, I couldn't really afford to build a website. So I learned how to, you know, do some like basic coding. And I got a um a, a template and I kind of adapted that with the coding and stuff like that. And I would stay up just late, obviously couldn't sleep. So I'd just stay up just doing that, you know, for a good, for a good year, maybe like year or so. Publishing articles, um, but you know, no one was really reading it. <laughs> like, you know, I wouldn't say anyone really cared, but you know, it was just me writing a little blog. So a few people would read it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal or anything. But I just kept going, you know, I just kept going, kept writing. Um, more people would come on board. I invited a few other dads to, you know, share their stories as well. Um, I think Dan was one of the first guys. He was the football writer. Dan and Peter, the first, they were the first guys I think that came on board. They were writing about football features, and then other dads was like, "Oh, I want to share my story on your blog or whatnot." So, so that was cool. And then in 2017, there was a a lady called Simone Simone Stewart. She um got in contact. She wanted to do. She saw what we were doing. She wanted to do a a piece on us, and she was a BBC online video journalist. So she came to um my house and filmed a video in our garden with four of us and our kids and it's just talking about mff and and uh what we're trying to do with it and then she called it the mum's net for dads and that was like the the catalyst for for everything else i would say you know that's when it became not just something that i was doing but that other people would talk about as a thing you know, and that's really interesting, like, when people start talking about something as its own entity, which is really interesting to me. Like, now it happens quite a lot, you know, even in one of my um, my workshops that I do, I, I thought of a, a new model for how we can build better relationships on Sunday, incorporated it on the Monday, and then people are now talking about it as a thing, this thing. And I'm thinking, I just thought of this yesterday literally in bed like and now it's an entity in itself but yeah it was really weird when people started talking about mff as its own entity you know um or oh, have you seen this or oh why don't you join this you would hear those, those kind of conversations or people would say to me oh i saw the your thing like so yeah from then that's when it all started from the, from the other level i guess when more dads would get in contact and then i wrote a piece for the independent actually about being a black dad and that was shared, I think, like 18,000 times in a day. And this was probably in, two, yes, 2017. So it was um before kind of, like, that's probably not big numbers now, but in 2017, that was actually, that was, yeah, a, a, a popular article that a lot of people kind of read and resonated with. And from there, yeah, we just kicked on. We just kicked on from there. The platform has been through lots of different iterations. At one point, we had a forum on the site that didn't quite work. We did, we were doing kind of dad family days before, before COVID. Um, so we've kind of learned what works and now I'm very clear about the impact we want to have, the level of discussion we want to have and how we want to do it. 
So we have The Lodge, which is our monthly online sessions. The next one's on the 30th of November, and it's going to be covering men's health. Um, we have a specialist coming who's going to be talking to us about prostate cancer and testicular cancer and cardiovascular diseases and how we can get better at, you know, checking ourselves, going to the doctors and stuff like that and going through some of the statistics. So The Lodge is really powerful. It's online, it's free, it's on Zoom monthly, themed sessions. They really work in terms of creating community. Um, the 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 podcast is good. We're launching season three on the fourteenth of, of November, so that's really a um a kind of impactful thing people really enjoy and take value from. And then our our partnerships with football clubs. So we've done QPR, um, Brentford, and now we have Arsenal coming up on twenty seventh of November, and our events are called Extra Time. They're football themed fatherhood conversations all about safe spaces for dads to connect and discuss, which is what all of our work is about. And they, they, they are really impactful as well, you know? So it's, it's about thinking about, for us, we've developed over time, what is it that is most impactful in terms of impacting people? And what are the best ways of doing that? And it took us a few years to work that out. But now we're more clear about where we focus our efforts. And the website is a place where we can publicize all that as well as, you know, share the odd article about what's going on as well. And our social media, we use that in the same way. Our social media is essentially to publicize the things that we are doing in terms of the content and the community events that we're producing. Um, so, yeah, it grew over, it grew very, very slowly. But we, we always had, you know, nice things happening in, along the way, which really gave me encouragement, especially as I had a full time job. The team grew. We've got a team of like 20 kind of volunteers who helped to 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 write and do strategy and uh and 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 co-host events and we have a social media manager called called Matt Brown. So yeah, over time it's just it's just it's just grown, you know, and um early last year I took the decision to finally leave my full-time job. Um which it was it was kind of like I have to do it now or never. Um the book was coming out, our book dad was coming out and I knew that I believed in the book so much that I had to I had to give it my full time attention and see what could happen, and I'm so glad I did because the last eighteen months have been wild. <laughs> I've been mad. That, you know, if you had told me this two years ago in 2020, November 2020, if you told me November 2020 what's going to happen <laughs> over the next two years, I would have liked to say I would have believed you, but I probably wouldn't have believed you to be honest. But it's one that's been thought of. You doing something for yourself and then putting that time and work and people saw what you were doing, they wanted to get involved and it grew and grew and grew. And then you had to back yourself, which is what, like that, that journey is, I think a lot of times people see like, oh, this looks amazing. This looks shiny. I'm like, yeah, but do you understand the process it took to get them in releasing something for a year and not really getting much traction from it? A lot of people can easily give up, but you're like, no, I'm, I'm doing this. And you kept on doing it and it kept on expanding, expanding and expanding. And the book's amazing. And I'm sure, again, being being a man, being a provider, being a husband, a father, all those different things, even making that decision just to be like, I need to go all in on this. Again, it's not always the easiest thing. And that was just coming off the pandemic. <laughs> so yeah. it wasn't like, this was like a rosy period. Like things were not the easiest thing in the economy. A lot of stuff we're feeling right now was all there. But you made that you made that decision, and it's great to see how much 
you have all grown, you've grown in particular, but what MFF keeps on providing and keeps on expanding and giving out because the space is necessary. Mm. Yeah, it is. And I think it's that backing yourself. You know, I'd say mm. I back myself twice. I back myself at the beginning, which I think is the hardest one. Like at the beginning, normally there's this, there's this process I look at. You announce something, everyone's really excited about it. Oh my God, you're announcing something new. It's the new shiny thing. Hey, let's all, let's all retweet, excited. Six, seven months later, when it hasn't necessarily blown up, because most things don't blow up straight away unless you've already got a platform, which I didn't at the time, people naturally will become less excited about it. Like, they'll still support you, but they're not as excited, right? It's not a shiny new thing. That is the hardest time. Because that's the time when you need to keep going and push through and believe in yourself. Because maybe the people around you and whatnot not saying they don't believe in you, but they haven't seen it blow up. So they their attention goes to the next new thing. So how do you get through that period? That's the hardest period. That could last like two or three years. <laughs> you know, that could last a while. But being consistent, like I've I've thought about MFF every day for the last seven years. I've done something to forward it every day. There's not one day I haven't thought about it. Not one Christmas day I think about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, there has been not one day I haven't thought about what can we do to build this thing and either done something or at least thought about it every day. So I think at the beginning, it's hard because you need to keep going and believing in it when maybe you don't have that that support there. And then I think the process happens is that you get maybe a big feature or you get a big interview or you get, you know, something happens, right? Because that's normally how the world works. Like, People are looking for things. If you've been there for two or three years doing it, saying it, sooner or later, normally something will happen and it goes to another level. People come back at that point. Then it begins, then, it, you know, you're, you're on a, how do you build from there? And so for me, that's exactly what happened. You know, when the BBC thing happened, cool, we're on another level now. But the, the second time I think I backed myself was leaving my job you know, early last year, leaving my job. And I'm looking at, the, looking at the bills and be like, look, I just need to make a thousand pounds a month. I was saying to Snelly, look, just need to make 999 pounds a month, baby. And we won't be homeless. <laughs> and, um, you know, why I say she's been so good is she like, she's, she's like me, right? She's very creative. She believes that we don't have to live this, this life that we've been told. So, um, she's very much like that, and uh, and her dad, who who passed away last year, he's there's a de- dedication from him in the book. But he was a massive inspiration to me because you know he was like seventy and starting a new business and stuff. So so he, so so we, we 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 she was supportive of that, and she supported that, and she believed in it. But yeah, just to leave, you know. But I think that's the thing to anyone listening. Like if you if you've been working at your thing, and you believe it can work, and you can see how it can work and you put that work in you have to back yourself sooner rather than later you have to because this this tension of a full-time job taking up all your time versus you have this thing here which you're building is actually succeeding to a certain extent that they're, they're likely in most cases to, to always clash and you'll always have to give up part of what you can give into your 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 thing because you have to spend so much time at work there's always going to be a moment where you have to think 
I need to jump. You know, have a safety net if you can. Have some savings and whatnot, but jump, back yourself, put 100% effort into it and see where it can go. Like it might grow so much just because you can dedicate so much time to it. You know, so for me, when I left, I knew the book was coming out. Um, I was working at the Treasury at the time. I was head of diversity and delivery, um, head of diversity delivery at the Treasury. So that was a big, busy job. Um, I just finished putting the book together. Super stressful time. Father-in-law passed away. My wife was at her mum's a lot of the time. So I had my daughter on my own. She was grieving. We were all grieving. You know, she'd wake up crying at 2, 3 a.m., go to work. Tough, tough working environment, very high pressured. So yeah, stressful time. But I knew I had to I had to take this leap and give this thing my 100% attention. And I did. And the book did so well. And that has kind of helped me to to um, carve out a career as a facilitator and a speaker, you know, taking the lessons from my personal experience, from MFF, from my corporate experience to to work with organisations. It's meant that um, the book inspired a documentary, a BBC documentary, which was shown for the first time in January. And it's going to be again on BBC One nationwide on the 14th of November on BBC One um, at 7.30. So that is amazing. And you know all these things have come and come out from from um from doing the work essentially. You know I went on Loose Women this year, crazy. I was on the panel and I said to them like, normally you guys get celebrities, right? Like, <laughs> kind of, it's like <laughs> this is mad. But, but I think they they realise the work is being done. And I always say to people that like, there's two ways that we can go about. If you want to, say, for example, be in the media, if you want to be in the media space, there's two ways you can go about it. You can either play like the numbers game and the influencer game. And that might mean going on reality TV or, you know, just doing something, being being a big influencer on social media. Like that is a route if that's the route that you want to take. But that's a numbers game. Right, like these media organizations, they're looking for people who have got the million followers, blah blah. It's a it's a numbers game ultimately. You have to go on Love Island, probably. The other way of <laughs> the other way of having the privilege of you know experiencing these amazing things. Like I've I remember being in Watford where I live and Zach calling me and saying he works in the BBC and he wants to do a documentary on my life and my work. And I was like, mate, you better send me an email from your BBC address so I know this is real because this is some sort of prank. Do you know what I mean? So he emailed me and then we, we got it cracking. But for those amazing opportunities, you can either go the numbers route or you can just do the work, you know. And by doing the work, I mean, whatever it is that your idea and your dream is, with the purpose of impacting individuals. It can still be a thing where you make money from it, but what is your thing you're trying to change in society? How are you trying to impact the world? How are you trying to collectively change how we think about something? If you just do the work and keep on doing the work, the things will happen. Do you know what I mean? I think it's very important for me to say that because so many people have said to me like, how did you get documentary? How did you get on Loose Women? My answer is just doing the work, you know? doing the work 
And so I think betting on yourself, taking the risk, believing fully in what you're doing, trying to innovate, you know, as I said, we set up a forum on the website, it didn't work. We were doing like social media conversations. Yeah, they worked, but they, they weren't quite what we wanted to do. Like we had to innovate along the way. We had to think about how do we incorporate football. It took us years to really work out how are we involved in football. Like I didn't know what MFF MFF's role was in football for so long. And then the idea about, okay, partnering with clubs, extra time that, that came along. So that took years to actually come to fruition. You know, the lodge, the, our online sessions for dads, that took years to actually come to fruition. Like we had to go through these different iterations of, how we engage with people, you know, the, the book and the depth of the stories in there, there are some very, very, very deep stories in the book. You know, it took us years to get to the point where we are comfortable. I am comfortable. And also the people contributing are comfortable enough to get to that level of vulnerability. Like that took years to get to. I couldn't have done the book in 2017. Like I, personally wasn't in a position to be able to have conversations with people people didn't trust me like I don't think as a society we're probably ready for it either so these things take time yeah exactly these things take time for us to to grow into so I think you know if you've got your idea like just stick with it grow with it and over over time if you're consistent I always say the people who organise Glastonbury, they need bands to play music. The people who are TV producers, they need people to feature. Documentary makers need people to feature. Like the king, I was going to say the queen, the king needs someone to give an MBE to. If that's what you want. I'm still undecided if that ever happens, but I'm just saying the king needs someone to give an MBE to, an OBE, if that's what you're after. So rather than thinking about, okay, like I, these, these opportunities are, are um, you know, I need them. It's more like they actually need you and me. We just need to be in a position to be able to embrace that, you know? And I think that means just doing the work consistently over a period of time. I can say after listening to that, that masterclass of how to, how to build... <laughs> I just stay, I just stay focused, and how to create what it is for me. It sounds very much create the life that you you want, rather than the one that you're told you need to have. And it's not one that's always easy to be able to do. But one thing I've always loved throughout this whole interview you've talked about is whether it's around talking about your dad and how he models certain behaviors, or having your wife right next to you, and how where she is and how she shows up how that's it would help you to grow and develop when you surround yourself with the right people whether that be the right friends right relationships it really makes a difference because that also gives you that that energy and that impetus to keep on going when whether it's something whatever new adventure you step into is not picking up steam or it's taking a while to get going um you can just kind of keep on pushing because you've got that support and that love around you. And that is key and crucial to each and every one of our, our growth as we look at what lies ahead of us. But you've you've dropped so many gems out all the way throughout this interview. And I love how you've been able to relate both looking at it from being a man 
and then being a being a father, being a husband, um, being a child, but also more importantly, the importance of taking time for yourself, like understanding what's going on for you as the individual, what's going on with your emotions, your mental health, all those different elements are the key and the pinnacle to, for me, what you've been able to birth and create, even the book, like get the book out there, 20 different people listen to their stories, collecting up. That is not easy. Like I'm currently writing right now and bro, like <laughs> it is, it is tough. <laughs> so being able to do that while in a full-time role, while doing everything you're doing at home, I'm like, nah, that's hats off to you. Like for real. Cause the book is absolutely amazing. And without even hearing what you just said, you would know that you just think, Oh, you know, Elliot had some time, took a year out, collate all these stories together. Nah, that's, it's a lot. So it just speaks to what he spoke around as a young six-year-old Elliot, that competitiveness, hardworking and discipline, those three different elements coming together to create and birth, not only the book, but birth MMF and keep on giving to the world. And again, you going into organization, you speaking about mental health, you speaking about well-being and you be able to share your experience in such an authentic way it's it's so powerful so really appreciate your time today i really appreciate you sharing your story and the last question i would like to leave off with how do you define leadership yeah. so yeah so thank you thank you Shafe. it's been um been great like obviously getting to know you through black founders hub over the last year or so um and yeah, this 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 has been a good way to start the week. <laughs> like free therapy. <laughs> we do this every week. Like, are you ready? <laughs> like, I'm a busy man. I guess I have to be a therapist. But um, yeah, how do we? How do I define leadership? I think uh, I think leadership. How do I define it? I think there's a few things. I'd like to come up with like a snappy, a snappy line. I don't think I've got one of those, but I think it's. I think there's a few things I would say. There's the 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 constant working on self. I would I would definitely say that you know good leaders are always trying to develop their ability to build relationships and understand people and understand the current context that we're living in. You know, and I've, I've seen I've worked with some great managers and leaders. Like I really have. There's a guy called Jonathan Moore who I worked with in the part of transport. And what I saw, he was a director general. You know, very busy job. He was just below the permanent secretary. He had a lot on. He was even the permanent secretary for a little while actually. While while the other permanent secretary went to the home office. But yeah, working with him and just seeing him, his consistency. His consistency was amazing. Over three and a half years of managing his office. I think there's only twice I would say that we had any kind of like miscommunication or there was a bit of like tension, like, and it wasn't even big things, like small things that happen at, at work, any relationship, <laughs> you know, there's going to be this thing, like I would say twice in three and a half years because he was so consistent with just who he was, how he responded to people. He was just so in control of, as much as possible, how he was feeling and how that came out to other people. And as a leader, like the small things you do can make, can really make a big impact. It's not always about the big visible town halls and making the big announcements and, you know, 
a lot of time it's the how do you treat your junior staff when you see them in the lift you know how do you greet them in the meeting how do you give them space and time to hear their explanation of that action point you know it's the small when they come up to your desk to say hello do you look them in the eye and say hi you know do you remember their name do you ask them a question about their weekend and actually genuinely listen like the little things I found in leadership are actually as important, if not more important than the big announcements and stuff like that, because we can all do the big announcement things. A lot of the time, the HR department tells us what to say. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we're given a brief to read, like we're doing the town hall. That's all good. But how do you treat people in the day to day? For me, that's really important. And that, t- that takes work. That takes, you know, that takes um, a level of mastery over our, our ourselves to manage our emotions and understand how we are coming across to people and emotional intelligence, you know, um, and the willingness to understand different people and different experiences, whether that's race, age, etc. Really, really key, really, really important. I'll say the other thing about leadership is is having a vision, you know, is 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 being the visionary that sees the future before it's there and is able to say, this is the world and the business and the culture we're trying to create. Um, maybe it doesn't exist at the moment or it doesn't necessarily make complete sense, but your ability to have that vision and then communicate that vision and really empower people to go out and live it. You know, that's, that's, that's one key element I would say. Um, and the last one I would say was, you know, being able to empower people and trust, trust people to, deliver you know if you're a really good leader i listen to um stephen bartlett's podcast i have a ceo quite a lot and one of the things that i hear consistently from then is is most businesses are kind of recruitment companies you know and your ability to to bring it on good people but then give them the space and trust them to 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 do what they're good at which is why you hired them in the first place you know and that's not always a a simple thing to do to trust and delegate and give people um, autonomy, especially if it's something that you've built yourself, you know? So um, yeah, I would say that's my, my answer. I've got to find an acronym or a sentence to say that. (laughs) Knowing knowing you, I have no doubt. Give give, give me a little while. You, You refine it. You get it down. To you, next framework could come out. Here's my framework of leadership and how we relate. So I'm like, all right, you know, I'm just saying when that when that happens, just 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 this is where it came from. Just, just say, just say, just say it's where it came from. It's where it came from. <laughs> nah, that's dope though. I like that. And to be fair, I think it's 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 hard. To, it's a hard thing to dispel sometimes into into just one small thing because it can mean so many different things and so many different approaches depending on what environment or context you find yourself in. So. Yeah. There's some great, great examples. All the information around Elliot, his work, MFF will be available in the show notes. Like tap into the monthly things that he's doing. Hire him as a speaker because you've just had a little snippet. You know, imagine you had him just in your in your audience, in your company, just your time, your space, just with him. Imagine what else will come out, what else you will learn, how will you grow. So I highly, highly recommend him to come out. Come to your organization as a speaker. Thank but you. Thank you very much for today, sir. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great. Really, really enjoyed this. 
it's been um yeah cleansing for the soul so thank you thank you for the time and the space <laughs> i love that <laughs> this is everyday leadership we'll see you next week while you're still recovering from that amazing conversation let me give a quick preview of what we got coming up next week make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out you know the first part of my a-levels was really disrupted because i kind of went i went into essentially depression not diagnosed but i know i was in depression um i stopped attending my classes having anger bursts anger outbursts within the college um i've even got a certificate that says the only child that smashed the window and uh found a way to get away with it i think that was handed to me in the second second part of my my, my a-levels